Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Diecast Movie Podcast, where the movie we discuss is decided by a roll of a die. And what we do is we roll the die and it picks the genre that we're going to talk about, whether it's action, drama, uh, science fiction, horror, documentary, and so on. There's 12 different genres. And we roll the die, and that picks the movie we're going to discuss, which half our episodes are. The other half of our episodes are interviews, where I've been lucky to interview people involved in the movie industry. So I hope you enjoyed this latest episode where we're going to be talking about Rebel Without a Cause with, with Cat Lively. Hope you guys enjoy it. Thank you. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Diecast Movie Podcast. This is Steve, and I'm at the Mid-Atlantic Nostalgia Convention on September 2022, mid-September. And I'm being joined by Cat Lively, and we're going to be talking about a movie she picked because we rolled a die and it came up drama, and she picked Rebel Without a Cause. Kat, how you doing today? Hi, Steve. I think I'm doing all right. We're over here at this um, wonderful convention. I'm I'm excited. We're having a good time. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, I'm glad to have you on the show. You and I met last year at this convention, and this year is so much different than last year. Last year, the air conditioning was broken, and we're all hot. <laughs> and this year, the air conditioning is definitely working. Yeah, yeah. It's it's been uh, safe to say it's been much smoother this year. We're we're staying in the same hotel as the convention this year instead of down the road, and the AC works. And it's been pretty pretty great so far. I mean, the AC works, but in some rooms it works almost too well. Yeah, yeah. It's been yeah. We got the opposite problem this year. <laughs> But the good part is, if you're cold, you can always add layers. And when it's when it's no air conditioning, there's only so much you can do. It's, you know, we don't because yeah. they have to keep this a PG That's convention. That's why I've got my leather jacket, <laughs> which is very fitting for this episode. <laughs> now, one of the things you do a podcast on YouTube mm-hmm. that I want you to tell people about because I've listened to a few of your interviews, and one of the things you do is you interview a lot of different people like we do here to get that that history of Hollywood out. But you also have a passion for a certain actor yes and i think um, that's appropriate with this movie marlon brand i'm just kidding james <laughs> dean <laughs> yes um uh yeah i do it's 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 been a it's been quite the journey with with this kid um yeah i, I mean i could go in i i could go into the novel or the cliff for cliff note version it's a lot but what's the name of your podcast? Calling Old Hollywood. Sorry. <laughs> um, so I started the podcast three three years ago after a trip to Indiana to James Dean's hometown. It's been wonderful. Started out with friends, and now it's uh, just increased to a lot of actors, legendary actors, directors, producers. You know, showbiz. It's been wonderful. And like I said, listeners, it's a wonderful thing. You just you search it on um, YouTube. You'll find. I also have a link in the show notes, so you'll be able to go right to it and. There, you've had you had Burt Ward on recently. Yep. You, um, you've had John James. You've had um, a, one we both had, Marley Renfro. Marley Renfro, Constance Towers. Yes, absolutely. Few of the same. It's uh, yeah, it's been wonderful. Um, you know, Tyrone Power Jr. Um, everyone, you know, from the actors to the friends and family of actors. You know, Natasha Wagner, Natalie Wood's daughter. And, and you know it's just it's it's an efforts to preserve history and, and film history uh, these people were the first of their kind and for me that's that's what it's about more than anything it's just you know we're getting further and further away from this era of of film and television and comedy and fashion and everything and I just think that it was one of the most beautiful eras of art in general so whatever I can do you know to keep that going in my own little 
weird way is what I'm doing. And I think uh, we're kindred spirits in that way. And and listeners, yes, I might have interviewed some of the same people she has, but the beauty of it is I've listened to hers. I think she's listened to mine. We, some things are overlap, but there's a lot of things we take in different directions, and that's the great thing when you have different interviewers. Mm-hmm. The interviewees come up with different answers to the questions. Yeah. And that's the good part is it, and you want to get as much as this recorded, this history down, because it's sad to say once it's gone, once, once they pass away, and we're dealing with people that are getting older, and yeah. um, what I find amazing is you're still under 30 and mm-hmm. you're so passionate about this. So that's that's what makes me feel happy about like there's a future generations that are coming in to keep this stuff alive. Absolutely. It's a mission. I mean, you know, I know I think that is the one thing where people always look at me and they go, how old are you? You know, going, well, the, the good thing was, you know, my grandparents raised me and they so I credit them 120 percent um the films you know when I was a kid I was watching Shirley Temple you know I was watching uh, some stuff I probably shouldn't have been Richard Pryor comedy specials and you know Rodney Dangerfield and uh you know all the Red Skelton um things like that it's like you know sound of music you know my mom and my dad gave me the best of both worlds with their classic interests because you know mom and dad were grandma and grandpa so it really came full circle uh, just a few years ago when I really started this seriously. And uh, it's been a, a wonderful journey. And that's, I think, it's, it's a wonderful journey. And the listeners that are listening to your podcast and mine, they're taking that journey with us. And I think that's the yeah. great thing is when you get to have that common ground. Absolutely. And I know the movie Rebel Without a Cause is a passion of yours because you, you basically worship james dean i think it's probably the easiest way to put it you, you've seen the you know, i mean you have a tattoo of him on your hand yeah so. <laughs> that was to symbolize like i lived in his so i lived in his former apartment in new york city for about well it was about four months or something like that and that was where i really discovered him that was in 2019 and yeah i totally for about a year two years i went down this ridiculous rabbit hole and you know ended up meeting his family and and hanging out in indiana with them and i met you know i'm close friends with you know friends that he had who are still living now you know his best friend who's still alive at 94 years old his birthday was yesterday and which is uh, what day september 14th that way people know right yeah yeah yeah. september 14th uh lou bracker who was actually on set uh, of rebel without a cause he was there for much of it so there are stories that like nobody else in the world has that he does and he's become like a grandpa to me um these things where it's like you just never even dream you know it's like whoa you know and jimmy's family that you know they call me every you know how are you doing in la and i'm just like you know, it's a little funny, but you know, you get what you what you put your mind on, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I think you can say you're an unofficial member from of the James Dean family, from judging from your videos that you put out with them, and you're, you're yeah. literally you get to stay at the farm and all that stuff, and you bring some background information that most people don't have, and had that opportunity you know, through the family to learn different things. Absolutely. It's been a blessing and I definitely don't take it for granted. You know, I I realize how special it is and, you know, it, it, it's, uh, I don't know. I think things just have a way sometimes of, of working out the way that they're supposed to. You know, I, I started in music when I moved to LA seven years ago. I was a professional musician. I played with Green Day. I toured. I did this whole thing. 
and I didn't like the lifestyle. It was it was just too crazy for me. And I like being behind the scenes here and there in front, but you know, mostly behind the scenes. I like talking to the people about the history. And so with all of this, kind of like you, I feel like a conduit. You know, it's it's just we kind of have this little place that we've carved where we're getting these stories out, where we're getting these you know, we're keeping history alive. And so yeah, no, I don't take it for granted. It's uh, it's like I, I keep saying it's it's certainly been the journey with Jimmy and you know even more I don't know I, it started with him and it's obviously it's gone so far out like now I'm interviewing people like Jimmy Walker and you know all this stuff is is happening and it's so far from James Dean but I will always go back to him because he was for me the entire he's the reason I started the podcast you know so yeah. Yeah, and for and for listeners who don't know, she literally um, yesterday on the 14th got to interview Jimmy Walker, Loretta Swit, Jamie Farr, and Bob Eubanks mm-hmm. on on the, the one of the seminars that they were doing here at the convention. So all one time, and it was a wonderful interview. It was and their stories Thank were you. funny uh, that they shared. It was a great thing where you you set them up, and they were all blast hitting they home them. runs yeah, all they over the it. place yes <laughs> totally yeah i i definitely did a lot of research for that one for that so it was a yeah at first it was a little intimidating i'm like how am i gonna juggle four legends <laughs> it's like how do you do this it's like am i a clown with some bowling pins in my hands or something but no they were you know they're pros all you got to do is you know ask a question they they took it and they they made it wonderful so i'm just happy i could be kind of the what do you call it? maestro, I guess. And the good part is you didn't have to be an, uh, a referee type thing. They all pretty much knew each other. They had their certain stories, and they were talking amongst themselves. Am yeah. I talking too much? No, you're okay, yeah, and that kind of good. stuff. And We could have gone another hour. They they were full of stories. Oh, I mean, they, they could have went for another day. I mean, yeah. it, it's that's that's the one thing when, when you interview people and you have an hour, 90 minutes, and you know you're just scratching the surface, and you could go on for days and days and, and totally. days and not repeat. and that that's the hardest part is is you know you have that thing and what do you cover and what do you what gets left out um, right and th- that's the hardest thing because there's certain topics i know you want to bring up and i want to bring up but they're some the interviewee is as leading was, us in a different way <laughs> as i was going to sleep last night i was thinking oh no i forgot to ask so and so that but you know it's like we just didn't have enough time yeah it's of course it's like that's what we do it's we're so you know we get excited about this kind of stuff totally and I was excited when you picked Rebel Without a Cause because it has been, I think I messaged you when I was watching it, I think it had been like 30 some odd years mm-hmm. since I last saw it. And What would uh, you think of it 30 years later? Well, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it both times. But it's, you look at it at different lenses because the first time I saw it, I was, I think, a teen, like late teens, early 20s. So I was somewhere at the age that, you know, they were, they were supposed to be playing. Of course, Really, nobody that's playing these high schoolers is, as it back in the fifties, is a high school age. I right, mean, they're all in their. They were in their twenties. Twenties, I think. I think Natalie might have been the youngest. I thought she was older than James Dean. No, 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 no. She's, uh, gosh, she was about seventeen. I want to say she was probably seventeen or eighteen in that film. Jimmy was like twenty-two. Let's see. It was filmed in nineteen fifty-five, right? Yeah. Technically okay. fifty-four, but fifty-five. Yep, yeah, she was seventeen. Yeah. <laughs> such a nerd <laughs> i knew her age yeah um yeah it's you know i'm not gonna, s- i'm not gonna argue with her anymore about this <laughs> about this thing you know because it's just it, it'd just be a losing cause natalie would uh, she's oh my god do you want to hear how she got the role in rebel 
Let's hear this it. This is one of my favorite sto- Hollywood stories, and this is part of why Natalie is my, f- she is my hands down favorite actress ever. I just, I love her. Um, so, so Natalie, you know, she was a child star, you know, Miracle on 34th. She did so much. Um, so uh, basically what happened was she heard that Nick Ray was doing Rebel Without a Cause. She knew James Dean was going to be in it. She knew this whole thing. She wanted to play the role of Judy. So she went to Nick Ray and she t- she wanted to audition. Nick Ray said, you're too much of a good girl. You're too wholesome. Uh, you're a child star. You're, it's just not the image. It's just not your thing, you know. And she, But she was determined. So I don't know how this happened, but she was writing. I think it was with Paul Newman on Sunset Boulevard one afternoon. And they ended up, I don't know if they got rear-ended. They got into a minor car accident. Natalie was not harmed, but she demanded to be taken to the hospital. And nobody could really figure it out. But she de- she's like, I want to go to the hospital. I'm not well. So they admitted her to the hospital. And she, as soon as she gets to the hospital, she tells them, she tells them, she says, get Nick Ray on the phone, get him down to the hospital. And so a few minutes later, you know, they called him and everything. He shows up later. She's in the hospital bed. Nick Ray walks into the, to Natalie's hospital room and he looks at her and she looks at him and she just says, well, I was just in a car accident. Am I a damn delinquent now? Like, cause that's what Nick wanted. He was like, you, you need, you're not enough of a delinquent. You're too much of a good girl. So she literally just did this whole thing to like prove a point that she was edgy enough. Look, I got in a car accident. You know, I'm not wholesome. Um, and Nick cast her. It was just, it's like ridiculous. I love this story. It was just, so, she was so ballsy. Yeah. It's the story of Natalie getting cast in Rebel Without a Cause because she nearly didn't get it. Who knows? I, mean, I don't know who would have been cast in her place, but I mean, and those are those things people always say. Well, what if this person would have got at that? You, you can go that route and be drive yourself nuts. Yeah. Just go. You, you got to go with who was actually for filmed. The role. Yeah. Well, a lot of it, a lot of people in this movie were perfect for the roles. Sal, I mean, Jimmy, everybody. Yeah, uh, yeah. It was. I mean, it was just. It was just wonderful. And to give give people an idea that have not seen the movie, what is the movie about? So it's it's literally it's it's basically it's teenage disillusionment. It's it's this you know the overall mood, the vibe, everything of this film is like you're you know mis being it's a teenager. The epitome of the teenager being misunderstood by the parents. You know this whole film is like Jimmy and his family, um, and his name's Jim in the film. So apropos, he you know they move to a new city because Jimmy is getting like bullied at his old high school and stuff like that. And he's, you know, they so his parents want to make this new life for him and give him a fresh start. But the problem is, is that that's their cure-all. They've done this a few times. You know, Jimmy just doesn't fit in with the kids. And, you know, so it's basically, it's it's this coming-of-age kind of, like, rebellious story of this kid who's just trying to fit in and be heard and be listened to. And, you know, his dad cowers to his mother. His mother's this dominant figure, there's a lot of things like that too. It's just it's it's demonstrating different roles in society. It's kind of like you know uh, the the upper hand, the lower hand between even the even the adults are confused in this film, um, you know, as well as the teenagers. And you know, by the end, it's kind of a tragic ending. It's sad, but it really encapsulates that time I think in a young person's life where you know you don't know your left from your right, and you're looking to people. For answers, but the people that you are supposed to be looking, you know, for answers 
from uh, don't have them. They themselves are in question with their life. And that's that's really what the film encompasses. It, it, it has, you know, it's edgy. You know, you've got the chicky run. You've got, you know, Buzz who goes over the cliff. Oops, for people who haven't seen it. It's, uh, you know, and Jim and Judy fall in love. And it's it's just this kind of, it's chaos, but it's beautiful chaos. It is. And, and again, again, it shows you when people are getting to that high school age and they start to realize in their teenage years that their parents are not omniscient they're not going to know all the answers yeah and that's when they start to, that's when they start to have that problem of guidance right right um, you have two characters mm-hmm. that are not the main characters that i always like that, that i thought were fascinating and the first one is jim backus yes and for everybody that's used to always seeing him as mr howe mm-hmm. and, and on so many other movies and things where he is just comedic gold right this was a, it's been a very decades. I, I forgot role. he was in the movie, and I'm yeah. watching again. And I'm like, I saw his name come. Jim, Jim Backus is mm-hmm. in this. There's no comedic roles in this, right? And so I'm watching him being the uh, father that's being dominated by mm-hmm. the, the mother. Yeah, um, wearing He's got the, the apron. apron, exactly. Yeah, all of it. And 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 the son just wants to see him be a man, right? And and and, and stand up for himself. It's a hard scene where he's asking his dad. He's he's laying in bed. He's a, he's about to go to this chicky run, like he knows that he's probably going to get into trouble. And there's this very particular scene. He's laying in bed and he's asking his dad. He said, you know, if you had to do something and it was a matter of honor, you know. And and his dad's like, are you in trouble? Are you this? Are you that? But he, he's still not listening to to Jim. You know, it's just this constant frustration. But yeah, the scenes too with Jim Backus, where he you know he's picking up the food that he spills, and it's just it's so vulnerable. It's so it's such a uh, yeah, it's out of character literally for for him for one of well, his roles. For what you typically think, but he does the character so well mm-hmm. and is so effective in it. Yeah, that I think for what I've seen so far of him, this is by far his best acting. Mm-hmm. Definitely dramatic role. Very dramatic. And yeah. it was just, and you could see he portrays the love that he has for his family and how he's, the, he capitulates because he doesn't want conflict. Yeah. And, but he capitulates too much. And eventually he starts to, near the end, change and realize that his son really does need him and starts to stand up and starts to develop a backbone. A backbone, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Like, you and I are thinking of, of yeah. along the same lines, and I thought that that was a great journey mm-hmm. of a character, and it really fit the movie so well. There's so it's such a roller coaster. How how the how Nick Ray how they all did this, you know, it's like every single character can literally just be dissected, and it's like a, they're roller coasters. You see an evolution through every almost every single person in the film from from Plato from you know Salminio's character from Jim from Judy uh, just it, it, it's ridiculous and the you know god yeah Salminio's character too that one of the it's probably one of the saddest characters I've ever seen in the film it's very uh, yeah yeah that's all I can say about that well, and, but the other adult character I wanted to bring up the other supporting one is, is Edward Platt who's mm-hmm. the opposite of Jim Backus yes. here's the man in supposedly has all the answers and, it, and a lot of his answers are very good and what, it's like if you have any trouble come seek me out i'll help mm-hmm. you and he tries and james dean tries to come find him but of yeah. course it, the, the police department doesn't want him there you know, get out of here kid we don't need you and totally and he really needed that help at the time and who knows that tragedy might have all been averted everything could have been different if 
the police would have listened and had happened right. many times. But I thought the scene that opens the movie mm-hmm. is so wonderfully shot, so wonderfully acted. With the monkey or, or the police station? Or both? Both. But the one I'm talking about right now is the police station. Weird fun fact, trivia, um, about the very first scene, though, with the monkey. So the house in the background behind Jimmy is... Um, Fatty Arbuckle's house. Oh. That's his old house. Yeah. So a lot of people don't know that. It's so cool. Anyway, yeah. The police station scene, though, it's so poignant. So poignant because it has all of them in the beginning. But the way, not just that, but the style and how they rotate the thing. They, they set up things and show things and move from different room to room and everything's established and it keeps rotating around. Yeah. So well. Between the characters. And the characters. And Edward Platt's characters. First, he's with Judy, Natalie Wood's character, and then talking to her, and then he goes and handles James Dean's character, and handles him in a way that's very 50s. You yes. Know, you can't get away with that anymore, and it's just, but he knew he had to get that aggression out and let him do that stuff. And So, you know, the, the scene that the, in the police station where he's uh, smashing the desk, he broke his hand. He was smashing the desk. He broke his actual hand, and they wanted to brace it up. They wanted to stop production so he could heal, and he refused. He's like, no, we have to keep going. Weird little fact that when you see him, like, grab his hand in pain at the end of the scene, that's real. He broke his hand. It's ridiculous. I was thinking that's had to hurt, you know, because I'm looking at him. I'm thinking, because I, I, I think everybody here, we've all hit something or kicked something, yeah. you know, out of frustration Most actors or act. They wouldn't do that, but, yeah. And I was like, man, they're doing really good sound effects of all this. Or he's really doing it. That was real. And I'm looking, and I was like, I think he's really doing it. Now I know for sure. He so broke it's, his hand. Uh, yeah, I, th- I think probably, you know, it would have been a lesson learned um, not to go too far. That's all he ever did. <laughs> yeah. Man. And then, um, yeah, so after, and that scene too where he, he looks at Edward Platt and he goes, if I just had one day where I felt like I belonged, where I wasn't confused all the time. You know, it was like that was such a very, I mean, you know, you're 10, you're not even 10 minutes into the film. It's like it really sets, it sets the play, you know. Yeah, with with Judy being in there, with Sal, with the stuff that Sal did. I mean, everything. It's, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I love that film. It establishes the three main characters, their background stories. It establishes... Um, Edward Platt's character it establishes Jim Backus's character, mm-hmm. the mom's character, Get the grandmother's character. Yeah. And it's just amazing how everybody is all established. It establishes Judy's dad, mm-hmm. who's not even in the he beginning called part. Me a tramp. Yeah. And, but you get played wonderfully by William Hopper, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, it's just. Which a lot of people know him from Perry Mason, besides yes. a lot of other great movies that he's been in. A wonderful actor. Yeah. And uh, but it's like, but her, what she feels of him and stuff, and it was just. Oof, and that too. Those scenes with not with 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 Judy. I keep going in between their real names and their characters, and you know the scene at dinner where she tries to kiss him on the cheek and he slaps her. You know, and he goes, "Girls don't do that." You know, and it's just like there's such there's such an overall theme in the film too of these teenagers that are just looking for love from their parents. You know, and there's just the parents just for whatever reason just do not understand because they're so confused with themselves. It's crazy. Exactly, and so it's it's just a great. I mean, how they opened it, it was for anybody that's directing things. It's mm-hmm. something you have to watch and see, and just watch the cinematography. Yeah, everything set up. It's just 
greatly blocked, acted, set up. You know exactly what's going on in the movie and what to expect. And then the one thing I'd also forgotten is that this whole thing, this whole movie takes place in less than two days. Yeah. And yeah. It's, it's just like, because that's because that starts off night one and then it ends on the next day's night. Well, mm. I guess you could say it starts in dawn. So really, like I said, it's about 24 hours. It, yeah. It covers three physical days, but it's really 24 hour period. Right. A you, lot happens. It does. <laughs> it does. It's, it's a roller coaster. You know, yeah. Jim and his family are in the city. You know, he gets in trouble. You know, he gets involved with the kids, you know, with um, with Buzz. They do the chicky run. He dies. Then they're hiding out. You know, Jim. The one thing I thought that, that was so weird, the only thing I would change about this film is how quickly Judy falls in love with Jim after Buzz dies. Exactly. <laughs> I, I felt that came out of nowhere. I'm like, really? Um, <laughs> That's the what. Is this what it's like to love somebody? It's like your boyfriend just died. You know, <laughs> can't. It is a very touching scene, but it's like, girl, your your boyfriend just fell over a cliff. Well, <laughs> and I'll go. Granted, it's James Dean. I might do the same, but if it was redone today, that would not <laughs> be there. But in my, it shouldn't be there. But in the fifties, I'm so used to seeing. I'm sure you've seen them too. We watch the old science fiction movies, the old mm -hmm. monster movies. And it all takes place within a couple of days, yes. and and it's the classic. leading actor and the leading actress all ends up to oh, it's suddenly we're gonna we're in love, we're gonna get married, and you're like, where'd that come from? Yeah, yeah. But in the fifties, and That's what in they a lot did. of sixties, it happened all the time. So yep. you just yeah, well, you gotta have them end up together in the end. They they have to kiss because mm -hmm. that's what the people want. Yep. Now, and I remember when I was a boy watching all those monster movies and sci-fi things, I didn't care about the romance story because a lot of times it didn't fit with the movie. I, yeah. But my dad would always tell me, that's not for you, son. That was for the women that were in the audience. Yep, exactly. <laughs> I was, I was like, okay. They're, yeah, they're trying to, like, cater to everybody, which the film does. You've got action. You've got death. You've got... A knife fight. Uh, you've got a knife fight at Griffith Observatory. I love that. It's, I hate Griffith all the time. Um but all of it, you've got love. I mean, it really does have so much. You know, in the beginning, when they first started production, they did this in black and white. And Jack Warner, uh, you know, from Warner Brothers, one of the heads, uh, saw a few minutes of it in black and white, uh, you know, before it was edited. And he literally, he told them, he said, no, he said, scrap the black and white. I want this done in Technicolor. So they, they started from the beginning. They didn't get too far into it, you know, a few days or something with filming. But once he saw some of it, that was his, like, demand. He wanted it done in color, which I think is a really great on his part. I mean, when we think about it now with the red jacket and just the way that everything popped, I don't know if it would have exactly – it would still have a huge, profound effect in, in film history, but would it have as much if it was in black and white, you know? It, 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 it's hard to say because, as we know, when somebody's filming in black and white, you're going for you set up everything differently because you're going for the shadows, the sh and the, the, the the different scales of black and white. But the red jacket popping off when the other guys mm -hmm. in the gang are all wearing black jackets, yes. so he's, you have that color contrast right there every time. So when they're in the scenes together, you know definitely. It makes it. It just makes it wonderful. It's me. such an all-American outfit. I mean, the wardrobe too in that film. Everybody, it was just you know top-notch, um, amazing. It was. It is funny though. These like high school kids look so much older in their suits and stuff like that. But it was also the times. Um, but it was yeah. It's just such a. It was such a wonderful film. And Plato, 
<laughs> Sal's character. Uh, what a character. <laughs> and you knew he was psychologically messed up. Was right? it the killing the dead puppies or the... Yeah. Just kidding. Just, yeah, yeah he was messed up. Because his dad deserted him. Um, his mom doesn't his, do anything Yeah, he him. only had like a nanny to watch over. And she was so caring. And yeah. So, and, and that boy don't have nobody. Just nobody. Yeah. And so, and so loving and, and just wanted... And, things to be better for him but but he started to go in his own fantasy thing where mm -hmm. he of course wanted um james dean's character to be his, his dad, dad. Oh, he take and judy to and be that. his mom yeah it fell into this really odd it yeah was, it was almost you could tell he was getting a little he was definitely off center because i wish he was my dad yeah at the chicky run and everything like that yeah it's it was weird when he was talking to judy and he was saying oh yeah he comes jim but he's, but his but the ones that are really close to him call him Jamie. Yeah. Which comes to play later on when Judy calls him Jamie. And, and he's just like, Jim's like, what? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. I thought that was such great acting on his face. He's, he's like, but of course, he liked the girl, mm -hmm. which was established earlier in the movie. And he, so he's not, you're not going to say, why are you calling me that? He was just, you're just like, okay, I'll figure this out later. This, this is, this, that's kind of weird. Yeah. That's one of my favorite film. My one, one of my favorite, like, intro love scenes or whatever i guess is when jim and judy meet in the beginning and uh you know it's just so classic and it's really cute and wholesome before all the chaos ensues you know i love the line where he goes life can be beautiful you know and she goes what is life <laughs> it's just it's so it's so good though it's such a contrast um it's wonderful i'm i'm i had the privilege to see it um in los angeles at the hollywood legion theater they uh there are two, uh, what two two remaining? What do they call those? Like the test, basically the cast saw it before the entire world did. You right. know, they had like the actual thirty eight millimeter, the copy that they all saw before everyone else did. They got it from Warner Brothers and they borrowed it for a couple of days and they screened it. So we got the crowd, the audience got to see the exact thirty eight millimeter that they did, which was so interesting. He's a he's a cute story about um. Uh, Jimmy and uh, Natalie well I don't know if it's a cute story but Jimmy and Natalie um, that Lou Lou Bracker uh, James Dean's best friend for the last two years of his life told me um, about Rebel so in between filming you know Jimmy and Natalie you know they, they were kind of cozy so Lou Lou told me that uh, he and Jimmy were sitting around one afternoon and they were having a bet this is kind of for adult ears um, they were having a bet they said do you think it's possible to sleep with someone in a Porsche? Can can it be done in a Porsche? And Lou said, I don't think so. And Jimmy said, no, I think it can be. And he said, I think it's – Lou. they went back and forth on this, <laughs> debating. And Lou goes, I think it's too, it's too small of a car, Jimmy. And Jimmy goes, no, I think you could do it. So he goes, all right, whatever. So a few days later, um, Lou Bracker – he wasn't home. He was at work or something. And Jimmy and Natalie drove up to Lou's house in a Porsche. And Lou's mom was outside, and she was watering the garden or something like that on the front lawn. And um, and Jimmy and Natalie, they rolled the window down, and they go, is Lou here? And Lou's mom goes, no, he's at work. And Jimmy goes, well, when you see him, uh, tell him that thing about the Porsche. Tell him yes. And <laughs> Natalie, like, waves to Lou's mom, like, oh, my God. It's like ridiculous. So there's that story. People, I know inquiring minds always wonder about Jimmy and Natalie. That tells you it's so funny another thing with uh yeah lou lou was on the set for um 
a lot of the latter half of, of Rebel Without a Cause, especially the Griffith Observatory scenes. And he, you know, he's told me things, you know, a lot of things about that film, but especially even the bullet scene. You know, he goes, I got the bullets! Uh, after, he said that Jimmy, they probably filmed that over and over and over for like eight hours. Like, they had long had the scene and been comfortable with it, but Jimmy had some kind of thing that he he just didn't feel like it was good enough so he had them retake and retake and retake god knows how much film they used doing that but he was insistent uh he wanted to do it to the best of his ability and they kept doing it until he felt like it was good enough so that final cut that you see was the one that he was like that's it you know which is kind of crazy when you think it's such a small scene but yeah he made them do it over and over until he felt comfortable which was something you could do in those days. I don't know if you could really get away with that now. Actors, I feel like, had so much more um, room to to do things like that. But Nicholas Ray really trusted Jimmy's uh, perspective, too. I think it still, as always, depends on the actor. Yeah. Certain, certain actors, I think, will always have, when they're in the height of their power, to bring, you know, have that clout to say, I think we should do this again and that again. And but he wasn't that big yet. He I had, know, you I know. know. Back then, but I'm saying yeah. still nowadays. Yeah. But then it was... Well, it depends on the director, too. Even if you have somebody, an actor of really high status, if you have a director that's also mm-hmm. up there, like a, like a Spielberg and an actor saying, I'm going to do this again, you could have um, an interesting conflict yeah. possible there. <laughs> Nick was so unconventional. You know, Nick did one of my other favorite films, uh, In a Lonely Place, with Humphrey Bogart, Gloria Graham. Oh, my God, I love that film. Um, he was an interesting, Nick Ray was an interesting, very interesting character. Um, and all of his films were a bit eccentric. So much of the cinematography, even in Rebel, there's a very specific scene where Jimmy is laying on the couch, and like the camera, t- it's like there's so like they 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 did that on the, on the fly. I think that was partly Jimmy's idea. Jimmy and Nick came up with that one together, and it's when you watch it and you kind of have you like that's you don't how often do you see like the entire camera tilt with the way that someone's body is. It's so interesting. And of course, his mom's coming down the stairs. He's home. He's home, and it's upside down, like it's from his point of POV. Yes. So it's it's really great, and it's I cool. love it because he comes in. And he sees his dad was waiting up for him and fell asleep mm. in the chair. Yeah. And he's exhausted, so he lays on the couch, and then the mom comes down, and then yes, and then and then basically all hell breaks loose. Yeah, you know, like in the house because of it's ridiculous. Oh, and the film. So you know the the um the big house that they go to. Uh, when they when they try to hide out from the cops and from everybody, you know, it's this big abandoned house and Plato follows them and finds them there. That is the house from Sunset Boulevard, um, the house, and that's the pool and everything. So they funny story about that one is that they were actually they were before filming. They were about to demolish that house. Sadly, it's not there anymore, but they were getting ready to the city was going to demolish the house. Nicholas Ray, the production of Rebel, they paid, I think it was 250 a day to keep the house from being demolished for another two weeks so they could film those scenes, which is really interesting. So literally right after Rebel was done filming those scenes, they, they demolished the house from Sunset Boulevard. Sad, but really interesting stuff. It's like, what you know, yeah. Well, you know, certain areas are always going to be sadly 
re- renovated and used for other things, and some history is lost forever. I shouldn't say some. There's a lot of history that's lost in places, and then you go back to places that you haven't been to for a number of years, and you're just like, wait a minute, that wasn't there. This was there, and and it happens. I mean, that's been the way for civilization since the beginning. Yeah, but I mean, that's like so, there because there there are houses though that are so iconic that they will not, literally they've made it into landmarks. It's yep. Hollywood. You know, I mean, there are certain houses that just because someone lived in them, they will not tear them down. I mean, they've made them into historical sites and stuff. But it's so weird to me that, like, I mean, Sunset Boulevard is one of the most iconic films of all time. And to have Rebel shot there and also various other films. There was a horror film that was that used that house, too. Was it House on Haunted Hill? It was something that used the, the pool or something. Um, I don't know. I'd have to look that up. There's, yeah. But there's, as you know, in Los Angeles, there's some locations that get used over and over. And that's the great right. thing because they're in constant use. That's why I don't understand. Um, yeah. They get rented. But uh, who knows? I mean, I wasn't. It, this, obviously, the city wanted to use it for something else that they demolished it. and Yeah, another house. So dumb. You know, I'll, yeah. yeah, but it happens. I mean, it's just one of those things. I know. I mean, there, there's certain things because Los Angeles is constantly changing. That, it, you know, sometimes, like, they just demolished Lucille Ball's house the other day on uh, Roxbury Drive in Beverly Hills. That's something nobody wanted to see happen, but they they did it. They're tearing down all the old houses in Beverly Hills to make way for these modern things. It's disgusting. Anyway, um, yeah, certain things I can let go, but there are certain things like that one, the Sunset Boulevard Rebel House, that I'm like, really? Like, nobody? Well, to, to get, to get the poor one thing, they did not know it was going to be the Rebel House at the time they demolished it because the... Yes, yeah, it was but even film, but, nobody knew, but the movie had it. I know, I know. All right, I'm gonna let it go. It, 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 you can't go back. <laughs> I know, and change I know. It. It's over. I know. And if you go back and change it, then it's gonna be like the butterfly, the butterfly effect. effect. And, yeah. And then this whole world will be totally different, and then yeah. you'll be like, "Why did I do that?" And you'll go back and call. And then next thing you know, you've caused multiple Damn timelines, you and you destroy the universe. Yeah. <laughs> also, I'm, you can I'm, have Sunset House. Yeah, I'm good. I'm all right. I mean, there's several like his apartment. There's a lot of stuff that still is there. The farm in India and all of that but yeah and and, and weirdly enough i know a lot of people always assume everybody's seen certain movies and you and i both know from talking to people there's movies that yes that have been out since the 50s Mm -hmm. the 30s the 40s the 20s yeah whatever and people have never seen it's that's why we don't like that's why we're not spoiling the end and we both recommend everybody see this movie i think i did spoil it though (laughs) you you didn't spoil the end you didn't spoil the end okay Good. Yeah, you, you, you spoiled a little bit in the middle, and you did say one of the comic lines at the end, mm-hmm. but you never said what happened. Yeah. So I don't think we spoiled the movie. Totally. Totally. But we have to talk about certain scenes. I mean, there are certain things we got to bring up. Yeah. But I really recommend people see the movie and seek it out because it is a classic. I mean, it, mm-hmm. it's, it's there for a reason. I know sometimes people say, oh, don't worry, that's a classic because it was James Dean's last film. It wasn't, though. That was his second film. But it but. He didn't. That's what people he, say. He died before it came out. Um, you know, he. I don't know if he ever even truly if he saw any of his films. He didn't go to the premiere of East of Eden. He was supposed to, but he didn't. And he was dead before Rebel came out. And then, yeah, Giant was his last film. That's right. Because I was thinking he died right after the film. Yeah, he died, God, probably two weeks after they wrapped production on Giant. Yeah. That was filmed in Marfa, Texas. And, um, but, you know, it, it's like. Lou Bracker, I keep going back to him because he has so much to say about Rebel and he's a dear friend and uh, you know, he calls Rebel the dark film because, I mean when you look at Natalie, Sal, Jimmy, they all of them died 
in really tragic ways. You know, Sal was killed, uh, Natalie drowned, and Jimmy, you know, the car crash. And so it's, you know, he calls that the dark period, the dark film. And in so many ways, he's right. But it's all, it's so, Im- I, but I love that it exists and that, you know, uh, it's still here for people to watch today. And it's definitely one of those films. It's like it just once, even if you hate it, because I know there are some people that go, oh, they're overacting or, oh, it's too dramatic or, but, you know, there are some really core lessons and some really good stuff in that movie that you can take away and uh, apply to your own life uh, at any age, not just this whole teenage, you know, coming of age thing, but. I love it. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you picked it. And um, again, for listeners that want to follow more about your stuff, they can follow you on YouTube at. Yeah. Um, well, it's on YouTube, Apple, Spotify. It's on pretty much every major stream, every major streaming platform, Calling Old Hollywood. Uh, if you just type that in to even Google, a bunch of stuff will pop up. Um, yeah, it's it's a labor of love and, you know, we're keeping history alive. And listeners, I hope everybody seeks out the movie and watches it and stuff like that and enjoy it and send us feedback at diecastmoviepodcast at gmail.com to let us know what you think about the movie. And um, again, like I said, go to Cat's show. I enjoy watching it and listening to watching it or listening to it, depending on which platform you're going on. And uh, I hope everybody has a good time. We're having a good time in Mid-Atlantic and this will be coming out in the end of September just before, sadly... uh, Jimmy's 67th anniversary of his death. Um, It's so weird that these people have been gone for so long and we're still, it's like they never left, you know, in so many ways. Um, Not just Jimmy, but everybody in classic Hollywood. Yeah, so, yeah, keep, uh, I don't know, keep rolling. Watch the film, watch Rebel Without a Cause. Exactly. I hope everybody enjoyed that episode where Kat and I talked about Rebel Without a Cause. Please leave us feedback again at Diecast Movie Podcast at gmail.com or leave us a message on our Facebook page. Our next episode that's going to be coming out is going to be my interview with Johnny Whitaker, barring any unforeseen circumstances. That should be the episode coming out in just a few days. So I hope you enjoyed that as we ramp up our way towards October 14th to 16th, 2022's Monster Bash. Johnny Whitaker is going to be one of the guests there. And I hope everybody has a chance that lives in the area, the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area, come to the bash, get to meet Johnny Whitaker, have a good old time, get to meet Son of Ghoul, who was two episodes ago, and you'll get to meet, hopefully, David The Rock Nelson, who will be coming out in a couple, his interview will be coming out in a couple episodes, besides lots of other people, classic movies, good time. Well, you know, instead of me talking about it, let's listen to the promo of it, and hope everybody enjoys their day. Bye. Classic monster movie fans from across the nation have their sights set on Monster Bash this October 14th, 15th, and 16th, 2022. It's the gathering of fans and professionals from every state for the event of a lifetime. It's a celebration of horror and science fiction films with a special spotlight on the greatest horror comedies of all time, like Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Hold on to your hats. Look at this guest of honor lineup. Ron Chaney, grandson of Lon Chaney. From the cult classic, Dracula vs. Frankenstein. Dracula himself, Sandor Vorkov. SCTV's Count Floyd, Joe Flaherty. From Family Affair and the mystery in Dracula's castle, Johnny Whitaker. 
zombie walker Jeremy Ambler from AMC's hit TV show, The Walking Dead. Monster Muppeteer, Emmy Award-winning Bill Diamond. TV horror host, Son of Ghoul, Drac, and Countess Corita, and more. Meet and chat with all the guests. Enjoy an almost non-stop film festival, life-size monsters, and shop over 100 vendor tables of the rarest monster movie collectibles, monster magazines, DVDs, Blu-rays, T-shirts, and everything classic monsters. Quick, get on board with monster movie fans from across the nation at Monster Bash, October 14th through the 16th, 2022, at the Marriott Pittsburgh North. Autumn's creepy classic festival of stars, vendors, and fans just like you. Get all the details right now at monsterbash.us. That's monsterbash.us. Or call 724-238-4317.